Good morning. I uh, would like to extend a, uh, a warm welcome to everyone who's here for Scholarship Weekend. If you're, if you're visiting, would you please stand so we can welcome you? I think after chapel, I'm supposed to remind um, everyone who's visiting that there will be a panel up front with Emily Ballant and Student Life, but chances are high that I will not remember, so I'm doing it right now. Um, there's a panel afterwards with Emily Ballant, Student Development, right after chapel. That was good. <clears throat> so we spent, uh, we spent last semester um, looking at... Um, the Old Testament and encountering Jesus in the Old Testament. And this semester, we're going to uh, shift gears a little bit, and we're going to look at encountering Jesus uh, in his miracles. Um, so uh, we're going to talk about miracles, and we're going to begin today at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Um, but uh, I wanted to tell you a story first. I have a, uh, we had a friend over this last week uh, for dinner. Uh, she's a, a high school teacher, and, and she asked me, she said, what are some of the, the trends? What are some of the like, big picture things you see with college students nowadays? Um, you know, painting broad brush, um, how would you sort of describe their, their world? And um, one of the things that I told her, and this is something that I, I, I think I see with some degree of regularity, is that I, I think there's a, a sense of, of generational anxiety, if you will. Um, and being very, like more specific and far less scientific, um, just kind of a, a deep sense that something um, is not quite right. Um, I don't mean on like a cosmic uh, fallen world sin sense, but something more immediate and particular at this time and this place um, in history. So I want to ask a question. Uh, can you hand my phone stuff? kind of walked right into that, didn't I? <laughs> uh, by the way, in case you're visiting, there are no cell phones allowed in chapel. Um, but you'll notice it is powered off. Uh, how many of you have one of these? It, not the exact one, like not mine, but, but, but one of these. Will you raise your hand seriously so I can see? Okay. Um, I'll be really honest. I asked Stephanie for my phone. I call it my phone habitually. Um, but it's not really, I, I don't know what this is. I've tried to sort of figure it out, but I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure it's not really a phone because I almost never make phone calls on it. Um, but I do a whole lot of other stuff on it and I don't know what to call it, but I will tell you this, actually before I go into that part, let me just say this. As a parent, there are parents in here with these, right? Um, so something, I've got two, I've got two daughters. Uh, one's a junior here and one is a junior in high school. And I found that you can do like some really fun things with these in particular. So recently um, uh, I downloaded an app, an app called TikTok. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so, so I'm 40, uh, I'm 49, 40, 48, I'm 48. Um, and and what was, once, what was once culturally relevant for me is no longer culturally relevant. 
um, for many of you. So, you know, I drop a Breakfast Club quote or a Ferris Bueller's Day Off quote. You might get it, you might not, um, but it's becoming like fewer and further between. Um, but what I've found that is really enjoyable and kind of fun to do is, um, so I browsed TikTok for a little while and found these memes and these like cultural idioms and maxims. And I'm just starting to like slide them into like casual conversation when my daughter's around. So <laughs> the other day, um, I, uh, I came downstairs and she was there. And sometimes I'll do it like kind of accurately and other times like not quite accurately. So I, I dropped a, a respect the drip, Karen. And, um, and my daughter looked at me and she said, what'd you say? I'm like, I don't know. And, and it just left her puzzled, right? So then it started, it, it made me think that you guys could do the exact opposite, like really mess with your parents. Like go on to the internet and look up like 80s like slang phrases and just start like dropping them in occasionally <laughs> in conversation without any recognition at all that that's what you're doing. Now depending on where your parents are from, you'll come up with different ones, but like things that, that are like truly 80s, like grody to the max, right? Something that wouldn't just slide in, but if you drop that, your parents are like, what? You're like, what, right? So anyway, t kind of an aside, sorry. Um, if you have this, you can see and talk with a person, a relative, a friend, down the street or across the world. Um, you have the ability to shop for shoes, listen to music, watch videos, watch movies, buy concert tickets. You can go on right now and check out what the surf at Surfrider Beach in Malibu is doing. Um, you can watch it on a camera. Uh, you can see more photos online every day, actually, you do see more photos online every day than most people throughout all of history saw in their entire lives. You can record reality, how crazy is that, and then share it for people to watch. Um, you are bombarded by information, choices, stories, images, songs, messages, products, in ways that only existed literally in science fiction when I was a kid. Jetsons, Star Trek. It, it was there, only in seed form. Um, <clears throat> the creators of these devices, of the apps, uh, of the content, um, they want nothing more than for you to desire this more than your own life breath. And there are companies who track everything you do and everywhere you go. And what they know about you and your habits and your interests and desires and personal life can be unsettling. And then there's the psychological concept of pairing. Check this out, this is pretty crazy, right? So the same screen, whether it's this or a laptop, that you are using to watch TikTok videos, to watch Netflix, to watch movies, um, the same screen that you're using to do that, where you're also studying and you're also writing papers, when you're trying to focus and write a paper and study, your brain does not forget as easily as you would like it to that that's the exact same place where you can have passive entertainment. That's not even mentioning the ways that these can be used for overt personal sin. So I don't think that generational anxiety is uh, that crazy of a reality given where we are right now in this space um, and time. But generational anxiety I don't think is actually new. Um, while this is probably the first time we've carried it around in our pockets, um, I believe it's existed in different times for different reasons. Um, and if we look at first century Jeru Jerusalem, I think we bump into a generational anxiety. Check this out. 
And remember what it would have been like first century Jerusalem. The temple is at the heart of Jerusalem. The priests are there. The Hebrew language is there. The feasts, the traditions, the history of the Jewish people are all there. They obeyed purification laws and made sacrifices and tithed at the temple. But God's glory hadn't been there for centuries. The Shekinah glory was gone, and God was no longer with his people. And they knew that something was off. So much so that when this guy shows up in the Judean wilderness telling people to repent, people from Jerusalem and Judea, the whole of Jordan go out to see him and confess sin and be baptized. So today, we're going to encounter Jesus in his first miracle at a wedding, coming into that context of generational anxiety. And he, by his miracle, is going to invite us into something quite spectacular. So scripture tells us that on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, we don't know exactly what wedding ceremonies looked like. Um, we don't know exactly what the proceedings looked like, but we do know a little bit about uh, weddings in the ancient Near East. And this is one of the um, important pieces for our text. Uh, the groom's friends would usually, the night before, take a bunch of torches and go out at night, and they would make their way from the groom's house to the bride's house, shouting, behold, the bridegroom cometh. And they would trek to her home, where they would get her, and they would bring her back to the groom's house. And once they got to the groom's house, a wedding feast, a party would take place. And they could last one day, several days. Um, but it was part of the groom and the groom's family's responsibility, literally a sacred duty to be hospitable and to provide an amazing feast and party for their guests. So that sets the stage for the story that's to come, which hinges really on one detail of wedding hospitality. In verse 3, it says that when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. So because of the importance of this hospitality, running out of wine would have been shameful for the groom. It would have been a bummer for the guests. And she, Jesus' mother, wants him to and believes that he will do something to fix it. And his response is kind of odd. Listen to what he says. He says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. But his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, it, it sounds almost, uh, almost rude, almost a little bit condescending. Woman, why do you involve me? But it's not. It has more of a, a sort of disconnected, impersonal tone. Think of it as something like, like, oh, sweet lady. Not mom. There's a, there's a disconnect being made. Sweet woman, it's not my hour yet. And we don't want to get lost in the weeds here, but Jesus is basically saying this. He's saying that her desires as his mother are no longer primary in his life. His hour, his hour of suffering, going to the cross, dying and rising from the dead is coming. And everything that he does in his life will now flow from that reality. Now, it's not that he's not going to do something at the wedding, but it's that what he is going to do at the, the wedding will have a very specific end. And she tells the servants, do whatever he says. And then scripture tells us, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. 
each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And, um, they would have been just common stone jars set at the door where as you would come in to visit a family, you would clean your feet, which had probably been covered in dirt as you walked, and you'd wash your hands, ceremonially pure, that you might then eat and feast together. And Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So here, I want you to picture that. You have these stone water jars, six of them. Filled them to the very brim. When you think of a brim, think of, of filling the stone water jar so that if you have the, the lip of the jar, the water just pokes up a little bit over. As full as they can be. So they fill these six stone water jars. They dip in, they take water, and they take it to the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet would have been just someone who was invited to the wedding who had kind of special, a special role as being one of the hosts and facilitators, right? So they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. So he, he's saying just a simple fact, after you've had an, a, a bit of wine, you bring the good stuff out first, and then when it doesn't matter anymore, that's when you bring the bad stuff out. But that's the exact opposite of what's happened. This is the best. So water becomes wine. And while the master of the banquet and the groom have no idea what happened, the servants know what happened. And then the next verse says, it was the first of the signs through which Jesus revealed his glory, which may seem like sort of an odd way to reveal your glory. How is it that the incarnate son of God chose turning water into wine to be his first revelation of his glory? Well, his first miracle at a wedding is not arbitrary. The location and what was taking place was not simply happenstance. Um, remember what happens the night before. The, the bridegroom's friends go out and they go to the bride's house shouting, behold, the, the bridegroom cometh. And that's what's happening at this wedding. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. The son of God has come for his bride. And that's why he has done the miracle, the first miracle, revealing his glory at a wedding. But the miracle tells a story of what has been and a story of what will be. The story of what has been is this. The religious experience of Israel was once an experience of God's glory dwelling in the midst of his people. They could see. They could even at times hear him. He once went before them in visible cloud and fire, and then he'd settle on the temple in their midst. And he was their peace. He was their strength. He was their protector and their God. But their religious experience had now been reduced to ceremonial law and obedience, to things that you just do. They were devoid of the peace that resulted from the presence of God being in their midst. So the jars at the wedding, they were used for washing, for ceremonial purity. They stand for the old order. They stand for the old ceremonial law. And by commanding them to be filled to the brim, Jesus is saying that the law that they represent, the old order, the what was, has been filled to its very top and is now complete. It's filled and it has come to its end. It is also, and more importantly, a story of what will be. Because while the old is filled 
complete and has come to its end, it is being replaced with something new, being replaced with a new wine. In the same way that the old order is metaphorically filled at the wedding, the consummation of this new order, of this new wine, will also take place at another wedding feast. The Bible calls it the wedding supper of the Lamb. We read about it in Revelation chapter 19. That is the what will be. The miracle tells this story twofold. What was, what was actually happening at the time, but then a picture of what's going to be and what will happen. Jesus turns the water to wine at a wedding to point to the consummation of history. To the very end of all things. To the end of his work and his love. Where we will feast with him as his bride and we will see him as he truly is in all of his glory. So think about this. At that actual wedding in Cana in Galilee, Jesus turns this water into wine and people drink the water that he has turned into wine. And they look at Jesus Christ, the incarnate son of God. They're drinking wine and feasting with God. And it's a foreshadowing. It's a small taste of what's going to come at the end of all things when history is consummated in the new heavens and the new earth. But then Jesus' bride will feast with him, drinking of wine, but seeing him as he truly is in all of his glory. And here, the first miracle that begins to reveal his glory tells the story of what was, but then it points forward to the story of what will be. Verse 11 says that what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So this miracle is an invitation to believe. And the disciples, they respond in belief. But I want to be very clear about what he is inviting them and what he invites us to believe. And we go on and we look at the second piece, these two things that kind of go together here. After this, they went down to Capernaum and with his mother and brothers and disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. And then when it was uh, almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So he went into the place of cultural anxiety, right? Generational anxiety. The place where people were going to come to worship, celebrate the Passover, celebrate God freeing his people from slavery in Egypt where Jerusalem would swell up to like two million people as the Jews pilgrimaged in to worship, to make sacrifice. And it's during that time Jesus makes his way up to the temple. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables and exchanging money. So scripture tells us that he makes a whip out of cords, and he begins to drive people out. He drives the animals out, the cows and the sheep, he turns over the money changers' tables, throws the money on the ground, tells those who are selling doves to get out. And here's what he says. He says, stop turning my father's house into a market. Get out of here. His disciples remembered that that was written. Zeal for your house will consume me after his death. But see what's happening here? God's glory is again at the temple. But very few see it. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, finds that his people have turned his father's house into a money-making opportunity, right? It's become a market capitalizing on worship. So they're profiting financially from worship and sacrifice. So he drives out the animals, he drives out the money changers, and he calls them on turning the temple into business. And this is where the invitation takes on um, deep clarity. 
because the Jews respond and they say, what sign can you show us to prove that you have authority to do all this? And Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. And they reply incredulously, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to rise it, you're going to raise it in three days. 46 years, they're rebuilding the temple there, um, Herod's temple. The temple he had spoken of, scripture tells us, was his body. Now Jesus is not inviting us to believe in a miracle worker. He's not inviting us to believe in a magician who can turn water to wine. God's glory is again in the midst of his people in the person of Jesus Christ. God's glory, the incarnate son of God, is again present at the temple. And he tells them in no uncertain terms that men no longer draw near to God by drawing near to a building like the temple. They now draw near to God by drawing near to him. And with his presence comes his peace. But both his presence and his peace were going to come in a way that no one expected. And that's what he meant by saying, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. He's talking about his body. In promising to raise the temple again in three days, Jesus is, is giving us another foreshadowing taste and look to the work that he's going to accomplish out of love. He is talking about his impending crucifixion, his death and resurrection. He's talking about what is in the forefront of his mind and his eyes for the rest of his life on earth as a man. He's talking about taking our sin upon himself and dying in our place. Dying a death that we deserve but could never pay. He's talking about dying for his bride. Destroy this body and I will raise it in three days. That is going to be how the peace and presence of God is meted out. But what's super cool about that is that is how he is going to make us his bride. He doesn't die for his bride. He dies so that he might make us into his bride. So that he might, by his Holy Spirit, sent down, indwell us and create in us. In the Old Testament, he calls his people his son. In the New Testament, by the indwelling of the Spirit, we become his bride. And why bride? Like, is that random? Is it? No. No, it's not. We're his bride because he lays down his life for us. The picture of how a husband on earth is to lay down his life for his wife. But not only do we become the bride, we become the bride by becoming living temples. We become the bride by becoming the living temples by which the Holy Spirit of God indwells us so that the, the presence of God himself by his spirit indwells us. He makes us both bride and temple. And one day, bride and temple will feast with the king in glory and see him as he truly is. Now, I want to be really clear, though, about one thing here. This is an invitation to believe that, but it's an invitation to believe with teeth. Because inherent in belief in Christ is to follow. The disciples don't just believe. There's not just mere intellectual assent of some kind. It's a powerful belief that involves following. And in order to follow, you have to have your eyes set on the one whom you're going to be following. Now, I started this morning talking about this, 
talking about technological induced techno technological technology tech induced anxiety if you will um, this in some ways is everything new but it's also everything old because I don't think it's really about technology as much as it is about the heart right I think and, and this is hard for me I wrestle with this I so badly want to lay down moral law on this thing because I hate it because of how easily distracted by it I am and how much time I spend with it, how I follow it. Ah, I hate it. So I want to be wrong. But it's an issue of the heart. This is just another way that the world throws at us and lays before our feet that we might turn inward and focus on self, to be controlled by and distracted by our desires, the things that distract us, easy distraction, passive entertainment. This is an issue of the heart, an opportunity to be consumed again with self. And the only hope for how to deal with that is the only hope for all things, right? Later on in John 16, I've told you these things, says Jesus, so that you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. He says, take heart, you can have peace, but it will be dictated by where your eyes and therefore where your hearts are focused. Now, the reality is we can only follow one thing. We're going to follow self or we're going to follow Jesus Christ. And the beauty is in this miracle, the invitation is not simply follow me without knowing where you're going. He tells us exactly where we're going. He tells us the end game. Right? He tells us, as my bride, a day will come where there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Not some ethereal reality where you float like angels, but where you will live in resurrected bodies. And at the wedding supper of the Lamb, where I will stand in full glory, you will see me exactly, as truly as I am. And we will sup together. And we will feast together. My peace, my presence in your midst for all of eternity. We know where we're going so that we can have peace and faith as we follow on the journey. Amen? Amen. 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 Praise God. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we are so, so grateful that you are a loving, gracious, merciful um, patient, God. Lord, I pray that as we walk in this world, uh, which you have overcome, that as the slings of the devil and as the distractions of the world seek to um, enslave us, control us, and make us fall in love with them, that, Lord, by your Spirit, you will not let our hearts rest until they're resting in you. Please, Lord, Help us to desire you above all other things. Lord, we love you. We give you praise. We give you honor. In Jesus' name and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good stuff.